Hello and welcome to Valina's talk. Um, I am extremely delighted to have my first guest uh, in 2022, uh, who is Samuel Romani. And today we will cover the topic of uh, Russian foreign and security uh, policy. Valina's talk uh, is a podcast uh, series, which is uh, possible due to the cooperation with Bharatvat uh, podcast uh, producer, one of the most uh, famous uh, Indian uh, podcast producers uh, in politics, policy and society. Uh, Samuel, welcome. Uh, and it's a really, really uh, big honor to have you with me uh, during the first uh, digital talk. Thank you. Yeah, it's really great to be here. Now, before we start, I would like to introduce uh, my guest very shortly. Samuel is a tutor of politics and international relations at the University of Oxford and an associate fellow at the Royal United Services uh, Institute. Samuel is an expert on post-1991 Russian foreign policy who contributes uh, regularly to media outlets such as the Washington Post and foreign policy and to think tanks such as the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Middle East Institute. He has briefed and advised the US Department of State, NATO Intelligence Fusion Center, UK Foreign and Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the US Department of Defense and France, uh, France's Ministry of Defense on Russian security policy. He's also awaiting uh, the publication of his first book entitled Russia in Africa, Resurgent Great Power or Bellicose Pretender, which will be published uh, by Hearst and Co in June this year and uh, Oxford University Press uh, later in the year. Samuel, welcome. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's great to be here again. So it's, uh, you're not going to be surprised uh, if I start uh, this uh, conversation with a question uh, on Eastern uh, Europe uh, following the really intensive uh, bilateral and multilateral talks uh, between uh, Russian president and the uh, American president uh, in Geneva, uh, then also NATO-Russia talks uh, in Brussels and after that also the OSCE talks uh, in Vienna. Now we are kind of back to uh, the uh, same uh, kind of escalation escalation uh, crisis uh, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, namely the crisis um, regarding uh, the possible reinvasion uh, of uh, Ukraine by Russia. So I would like to hear your assessment on the current situation. And also I would like to know what is your opinion on that matter. Currently we have the two kind of groups of experts. Um, the one, uh, being convinced of a um, Russian in reinvasion and the other one rather not so much convinced that there will be a direct military attack by Russia? Well, I think that the situation uh, between Russia and the West is certainly at a very precarious state. It's apparent that the talks in Geneva, the OSCE negotiations, and the NATO-Russian negotiations have not led to a breakthrough on the core issues, which are namely Russia's desire to have security guarantees from NATO that it will not expand to include Georgia and Ukraine. In fact, Jens Stoltenberg was even 
hinting and implying yesterday that the path was open to Sweden and Finland to join NATO should they choose to. So that's exactly the opposite of what Russia was hoping for. And by the same token, from the Western side, there doesn't seem to be any sign that Russia is letting up on its uh, plans to uh, launch aggressive campaigns against Ukraine, even while it was uh, deploying CSTO peacekeepers to Kazakhstan and starting its military intervention in Mali last week, it was continuing to move large amounts of war material towards the Russian-Ukrainian border, which meant that that previous removal of 10,000 troops was something of a mirage. So the situation between Russia and the West remains extremely strained. These talks have not really produced much of a breakthrough, in part because the positions are so hard and on both sides particularly with regards to Russia's vehement opposition to NATO's presence on its borders and NATO's uh, vehement opposition to Russia's efforts to dictate the sovereignty of post-Soviet states and tell them which alliances they can join and cannot join. So that's something that's pretty much uh, an intractable problem. And the rhetoric is uh, definitely going in a dangerous direction too when you look at Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybakov's statement that the Russians could not rule out deploying forces or military equipment in Cuba and Venezuela is kind of uh, indicative of a, of a very, very high level of tension. But will that tension lead to war? Will that escalation uh, be, is that escalation inevitable? I'm a bit skeptical of that. I think that Russia's primary goal in terms of mobilizing on the Ukrainian border was to leverage brinkmanship, was to see if they could use brinkmanship to get concessions from the West and then relay those concessions back home to show that Russia's got this uh, resurgence as a great power, is being respected by the West, is being recognized. So a lot of what Russia was doing in terms of military mobilizations was about recognition, was about uh, status seeking at home. Now that it appears as if the talks have not gone very well, I think the Russians probably are factoring that in. Even the OSCE talks on Chechnya, for example, were similarly a failure in 1999, just like the ones that we're having now about Ukraine. So this is not the first time that even the OSCE has not been able to achieve a deadlock. The, the Russians have got two paths. One is that they continue to engage in, in brinkmanship and unpredictable provocations inside Eastern Europe and across different global theaters to try to see if they can get the West to cave. That seems like the most likely outcome. And the second outcome is they go all in towards an outright intervention and invasion. Well, the reason why I think that that's less likely than continued brinkmanship is because in 2014 and 2015, the Russians annexed Crimea bloodlessly. They entered Donbass, but they never admitted to their own public. That, the, that they actually were sending troops to Ukraine. They kept the intervention deniable. And then as casualties started to mount, and then as they realized that their ethnic Russian compatriots were not necessarily going to fight on Russia's side, they had to abandon the goal of recapturing all of Novorossiya, charging towards Odessa, changing the regime in Kiev, which may have been their long-term goal. So to avoid unnecessary costs and to avoid the appearance of failure at home, as well given the fact that the Russian public is concerned about economic issues and COVID, I think that Putin might decide that the most pragmatic decision at this time is to continue to engage in this kind of brinkmanship in the hopes that the West caves and he can bring something back while resolving the problems that Russia is facing domestically. Mm -hmm. um, okay, but uh, now we have a new deadline, and that is that uh, Russia expects the US and NATO to provide a written ex, uh, answer next week. Do you think that this is uh, really a serious um, kind of uh, deadline? What kind of uh, response uh, could come from uh, the US and NATO in a week from now, given the um, response that we've uh, actually witnessed from the last week? So I don't think that the uh, response from the U.S. and NATO is going to be anything that's going to really be able to please Russia or satisfies Russia in terms of NATO expansion or in terms of the deployment of troops on Russia's border. So 
if those are the issues that Russia is going for, then they're not going to get what they want. And the question is, how are they going to react to that? I mean, I think that there could be a possible middle ground between the two scenarios we just discussed, like the possibility of a full-on invasion or uh, continued brinkmanship. And that could be a, a limited uh, military intervention, which moves lines of control slightly in Donbass and kind of sends a warning shot and puts more pressure on the West. That's a possibility, too, that we can look forward to. But I don't think that that it's going to lead to much of a change either for the good or really drastically for the bad within the next week. It's going to take a little longer for the scenario to really flush itself out. Mm -hmm. And what kind of time frame uh, uh, do you do you consider for uh, your uh, scenario? How long could uh, both uh, sides, uh, conflict sides, actually uh, keep up uh, with that uh, kind of, uh, well, more or less um, transparent uh, way of uh, solving the crisis? Well, Would you I expect, that, for instance, a backfiring on the one or the other side, specifically on the Russian side, of course? Well, the Russians are uh, coming into the calculation that the only potential backfiring that they're going to be initially face is more sanctions, right? And then the, that's why the issue of sanctions against Vladimir Putin came up as something that was quite prominent. And that would be quite a significant step, as only seven world leaders right now are currently sanctioned by the United States. And that tends to be the traditional uh, rogue states or states that the U.S. seems to view as their, their adversaries, so North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, etc. So to have Russia added, being added to that bracket would be a major escalatory move, and Putin has made that clear. But I don't know whether the threat of further sanctions is really going to deter Russia from continuing to engage in brinkmanship. The uh, track record from 2014 suggests that's not the case. And nor do I think that there's really a time limit for this kind of brinkmanship to happen. In the past, brinkmanship has, uh, has escalated and cooled down over relatively short bursts, like we saw over the Kerch Strait dispute in Ukraine in 2018 or this spring. But I don't necessarily think that that's an inevitability. This kind of saber rattling could go back and forth for weeks or even months until there's uh, some kind of a, the, the impasse is resolved, or the Russians in the West start to realize that they need to cooperate with each other on other issues. So everything from uh, energy security and Nord Stream 2 to the Iran nuclear deal to other files lead to dialogue, and then eventually this crisis kind of simmers down on its own. That's kind of how I see it happening. I don't think there's really a time limit for the, for the resolution or for an end to the crisis. Mm -hmm. But let's just take uh, for a second uh, the, uh, the, the, the other um, main narrative into consideration, um, assuming that uh, Russia decides to attack Ukraine. Uh, will Russia try to occupy specific terrains uh, in eastern Ukraine, in your view? And what kind of other options will actually uh, be on the table for Russia that would inflict pain on the Ukrainian military uh, in order to, uh, well, compel Ukraine without the risk, uh, re the risks associated with uh, uh, a real occupation. We both agree that uh, there, there is uh, no uh, serious uh, plan on uh, occupying the whole territory of Ukraine. So obviously there will be only limited, uh, there will be a limited scope of occupation, if at all. But let's, let's just elaborate a little bit on that scenario. So there's uh, several possible uh roots of uh, provocation and invasions have generally been kind of uh, foreseen by security experts. One obviously would be uh, coming through from the southern flank, so i.e. moving troops through Crimea and upward to some of those surrounding territories. The second would probably be moving towards uh, 
beyond Mariupol to uh, Dnipropetrovsk and some of the areas of, of Donbass, pushing in and around Kharkiv in the eastern part. And then the third would be an unexpected move that would cut them through Belarus and enter uh, northern Ukraine, pushing towards the capital. So those are the three routes that some American security experts have uh, have looked at. There's actually a report in CSIS that actually documents the plausibility of all these routes that I encourage you all to read and look at. Of those three, I would say the most, by far the most likely one is probably a continued push from Donetsk and Luhansk further into Eastern Ukraine. So the Eastern route is probably the most likely one. And the uh, question is, what kind of assets and what kind of resources will Ukraine be able to get to counter Russia in that scenario? It looks as if Ukraine is going to be able to continue to get access to Turkish drones. It's important to keep in mind that Turkey's uh, drone, Bayraktar TB2 drones that were that arrived in Ukraine when they were used in Donbass, that was one of the proximate triggers for this whole escalation to begin with back in November. Mm -hmm. And the Turks have said there's going to, they're going to put no limits on, their, on further shipments. They're going to continue to work with the Ukrainians on joint production and enhancement of these drone and self-capabilities. So Turkish drones, the arrival of Turkish drones could be something that Ukraine could have to counter Russia's attack coming from the East. It's also obviously possible that the United States or Europe will be able to sanction some form of lethal arms in that scenario, like Javelin anti-tank missiles or uh, more defensive equipment. The Germans, however, have been skirting around the issue when the Ukrainian Defense Ministry have been asking them for assistance. So it might be more of an American-led effort than a European-led effort. So we should watch what America and Turkey do. But yeah, I think that there will be the most likely scenario for Russia's military is to come from the east rather than from the south or the north. And uh, I think we should watch what the Turks and the Americans do in response to see whether that can be enough to kind of create a degree of counter deterrence. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So let's move to Eurasia now, because we have a quite of a tight agenda for uh, yeah. the 60 minutes uh, of talk. The geopolitical crisis in Kazakhstan was uh, overcome despite the ongoing internal dynamics related to the transition of power and the social discontent resulting from the rise of uh, energy prices uh, in the country. Uh, we've clearly observed that none of the external actors was interested in a protracted uh, crisis, crisis in Kazakhstan, which also contributed to the rapid escalation. But there was one main actor on the ground, uh, which uh, significantly contributed to the rapid resolving of the crisis, and that uh, was Russia. Russia has already announced the withdrawal of uh, its troops uh, after uh, Kazakhstan was, according to the CSTO, successfully stabilized. Um, so what is your view on uh, the post-crisis uh, scenario for Kazakhstan and Central Asia? Has Russia managed to uh, increase uh, its bargaining power, not only versus Kazakhstan um, and uh, respectively, of course, uh, other, the other Central Asian countries, but also versus uh, the other main player on the ground, and that is China? Uh, or do you think that this will backfire um, in the long term? So basically, um, it will actually bring about negative uh, impact on Russian foreign and security uh, policy goals uh, in the long run. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack over here. I would say that, uh, first of all, the uh, Kazakh political crisis that uh, led to Russia's uh, necessitating a military intervention and the protests that necessitated that are unlikely to end in the near future. So the situation might have stabilized in the major cities, but the crisis itself is not over. 
This is in part because there's been ongoing protests inside Kazakhstan since 2018. Over the past two years, Kazakhstan has actually surpassed Kyrgyzstan, which is tradi the traditional hotbed of uh, unrest in Central Asia with the revolutions in 2005 and 2010 as the main locus of instability in terms of mass demonstrations in this region. So it's had more protests than uh, than Kyrgyzstan and some years, particularly 2020 and 2021, more protests than the rest of Central Asia combined. So Kazakhstan has a lot of uh, sources of unrest. There's unrest coming from a variety of, uh, of reasons. First of all, Tokayev, the president, has not made uh, compromises in terms of political liberalization that he pledged to after his takeover from Nursultan Nis Nazarbayev. The second, obviously, are issues relating to economics. So the fact that they have an 8.4% inflation rate, and that inflation rate is really being felt in the sphere of, uh, of natural gas, which was one of the proximate triggers for these protests. And the third is obviously the ongoing uh, concerns within Kazakhstan about Chinese influence and the anti-Chinese protests, which immediately preceded this. So all of those factors are still going to be a problem now. Tokayev's entry and invitation of Russian troops could actually project to the Kazakh opposition a sign of weakness. It's a sign that he was unable to manage the situation himself, so he had to get a foreign power, Russia, in to do his dirty work and do his troubleshooting. So the Russian military intervention might have stabilized things in the short term, but it might backfire in the long term. And there's little evidence that the uh, Kazakh public or the Kazakh protesters are really buying any of the narratives coming from the Kazakh state that Russia is so actively reinforced, namely that this is a foreign instigation from the, this is a color revolution, or these people are terrorists crossing in from Afghanistan. Those uh, those narratives appear to be uh, resonant at the uh, at the state level and to Kazakhstan's international partners, but not necessarily to the people on the ground. And it's likely that these protests can uh, really survive and continue even without a clearly defined leader. So they've been re actually rejecting figures who have been trying to claim leadership mantles, like Mukhtar Abliyazov, who are living outside. And this is just engagement coming from people on the ground, civil society. Who this these protests are self-sustaining and they have their self-sustaining source of fuel. And Tokayev recognizes this and Tokayev acknowledges this. He's actually basically looking towards September 2022 to announce uh, political reforms. He's talking about the next eight months as some kind of a transitional stage. So he's acknowledging the fact that the crisis is still moving forward, even though the temporary uh, unrest and violence might have stabilized. And from that point of view, that leads to a question of what Russia will do and what Russia can do. Will it... Uh, chronically kind of keep coming in and acting as a troubleshooter every time unrest seems to surface inside Kazakhstan. Inside Russia, there's a polarized reaction as to whether this mission was a success or a failure. Some people view the decisiveness of the Russian mission. The fact that the CSTO was able to uh, go within 12 hours from accepting a Kazakh request and sending troops in as a sign that the Collective Security Treaty Organization is now a powerful security block in its own right. It's more than just an institution that has solidarity with its allies. It's actually an institution that can carry out proactive and decisive action. So the supporters of the intervention see that as quite a good thing. The supporters also point to the fact that Russia was able to uh, uh, stabilize the situation within the space of a week. And this was, uh, and it was also able to also get other countries like Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, Belarus to contribute troops and to get involved. So there was a source of cohesion there that wasn't present when the Kyrgyz asked the CSTO to get involved in 2010 and they declined, or the Armenians asked the CSTO to get involved in the Karabakh war and they declined. So from that point of view, this looks like a success from the Russian point of view. But also there are concerns that this could be an opening or a gateway towards uh, unchecked Russian involvement in the post-Soviet space. And it's important to keep in mind the precise reason why the Russians did not intervene on Armenia's behalf 
or more pronouncedly on Belarus's behalf in 2020 was because there was a feeling that we should be looking inwards, dealing with our own domestic issues and not be the kind of uh, troubleshooter and inter intervening power in every crisis that pops up in the post-Soviet space. We need to be more focused on our national interests than on, on our symbolic, uh, symbolic uh, projection of great power status. So the, the, if this is a one-time intervention, which leads to success, the protests do not, do not require any further assistance from Russia, then Russia can frame this as a success to its own audience and to the international community. If this is just a starting point for Kazakhstan having unrest flaring up every several months and Russia having to come in and be the troubleshooter, then it will look more and more like a failure. And that's why they have that kind of divided response. With respect to Russia's relationships with other international powers, I think that this has been a good thing for the Russian relationship with China. The Chinese have reacted positively towards the Russians uh, basically defending Kazakh sovereignty as they see it, cracking down on unrest. The big question, of course, is will the Russians be similarly comfortable if China feels the need to intervene in Central Asia to deal with issues like the Tajik-Afghan border dispute or infringe on its sphere of influence? Early signs from the events of the past few years suggest that the Chinese are probably okay with Russian power projection. The Russians may not be as okay with Chinese power projection. Also from the international dimension, just to briefly note, I think that this did strengthen cohesion within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, at least in terms of narratives, and also Russia's partnerships with some other countries that they've been targeting, like Iran, like even Turkey, where they had a common ground on this issue, and Serbia, where they were just promoting the opposition to color revolutions. So all in all, I think from an international standpoint, it was a success for Russia, but much depends on whether this is just a one-time thing or whether this is the start of Russia facing a decision as to how involved it wants to get into Kazakh politics going forward because the Kazakh crisis is not going away. Maybe just a very short additional question. Uh, do you think that the dragon bear may have uh, just discovered a successful formula of uh, task sharing, uh, Russia being the security provider, China being the financial and economic provider, that can become a pattern in other parts of the world to just take Afghanistan into consideration where China and Russia have been already coordinating before the US withdrawal. Uh, from the country. Uh, so basically, uh, now that it was uh, tested uh, on uh, the Kazakh territory, that might actually kind of split roles and uh, decide to uh, do a complementary work that might eventually even result in a kind of a merger of, uh, you know, activities and uh, not just positions, because we've, we've witnessed that already, but uh, also um, concrete actions between the CSTO and um, CSO, so basically between the two original organizations that are led by both Russia and China? That's a great question. I think that obviously the, uh, the fact that the Chinese were okay with Russian power projection is a positive sign. And as you state, the Russians and Chinese have been cooperating, not just in diplomatic formats, but also in terms of potential drills and security in a security standpoint, but how to deal with the fallout from Afghanistan. The big question is, whether that relationship will be institutionalized, it depends on two factors. One, Russia's continued will to intervene. It seems like Russia's willingness to intervene in Kazakhstan because it's a core member of the Eurasian Economic Union, because it seems an integral part of their sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space, was pretty clear cut. Also, it was invitation by consent. The Kazakh government asked them, and Russia generally tries as much as often as possible when it's in its interest to comply with those sorts of requests. Will the Russians want to get uh, into the weeds of the Afghan situation? Will they want to get into the weeds of the Tajik-Afghan border situation? Early signs basically suggested when 
the Tajiks were funneling uh, resources and money allegedly to the National Resistance Front in Afghanistan, and they were concerned about cross-border attacks. The message from the Russians to the Tajiks was, this is your own battle. you got to fight your own battles. We're going to leave this alone. So I don't think the Chinese are going to be hanging their hat on Russia being this kind of universal security provider, even in the their immediate zone of influence in Eurasia, let alone across the world. So the Chinese are cognizant of, uh, of the fact that Russian involvement in Kazakhstan may not be something that's going to be replicated universally elsewhere. And that kind of binary of China dealing, dealing with investment and Russia dealing with security might not play out. The second thing is that when you look more globally, there are concerns inside China about some of the uh, disruptive character of Russia's uh, military interventions, namely the tendency to sell arms to both sides of, of, of protracted conflicts, namely their tendency to uh, also use uh, private military contractors and uh, uh, other forms of intervention that uh, the Chinese might not necessarily approve of. So if you look at the reaction of some Chinese uh, state, state line media, as well as Chinese uh, social media and netizens towards Russia's deployment of water group in Central African Republic or Mozambique, or even what they attempted to do in Belarus last year, or Venezuela, you see actually a lot of critical responses. And I've been tracking that and including some of those in my forthcoming book, as well as in some other work I've written. And that's primarily because they view these kind of Russian uh, uh, forms of power projection as threatening to the stability of various regional orders and as disruptive tactics that could actually undermine the security of Belt and Road investments and not enhance it. So the, the image of Russia as a disruptor might also prevent this kind of uh, binary dragon bear from really taking part elsewhere in the world, especially in Africa, the MENA region, and potentially Latin America. So that's how I see it. I think it's too early to say whether this is going to be a long-term success for the, that kind of dragon bear relationship, but it was definitely a good moment for Russia-China relations in the short term. Mm -hmm. So now we are moving to the Middle East, and this is another region where actually Russia has re-emerged as a key power broker, um, but also as a military and security actor following uh, the Russian involvement uh, in uh, Syria uh, since 2015. And now Russia has also raised its profile among the Persian Gulf or Arab states, and of course has also established a very solid uh, relationship with Iran. Um, and I would like to know what's your assessment um, on the Russian approach in the Middle East. What are also your ex ex expectations for, um, for this year? Will there be any surprises coming out of uh, the region? Uh, we are clearly observing a kind of an absent American uh, role uh, for the moment and at the very same time all the regional actors are currently involved in various fluid uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic constellations so where do you see uh, Russia in all these uh, fluid uh, constellations? That's a great set of questions so first of all uh, Russia's uh, involvement in resurgence in the Middle East may have seemed like something that's happened quite suddenly since the Arab Spring in particular since the intervention in Syria in 2015 but that has caused some people in the West sometimes to overlook its uh, sustainability and to kind of uh, undermine and question it in some ways, because it's often seen as being dependent on a particular crisis like Syria and not necessarily uh, rooted in very strong foundations because they have low trade volumes and the economic investments have not really moved at the same level as some of the security and diplomatic partnerships. So first of all, I think the Russian involvement in the Middle East is more sustainable than we might assume. Second of all, Russia is unlikely to pick sides in regional conflicts. Instead, it's going to probably pursue something of a 
friends with all, enemies of none, allies of none. So it's going to have limits to its partnerships. It's going to try to balance good relations with everybody, which is something that the Americans can't do, obviously, because of their problems with Iran and to a lesser extent, their hot and cold relationships with countries like Turkey and Egypt. So the, the, uh, the Russians are going to try to leverage that and they're going to maintain a degree of influence. So what will be the, some of the things to look out for in 2022? Here are a few uh, trends and things I would like everybody to consider. Number one, I think that the Russian military intervention in Syria will continue uh, with regards to uh, strikes in Idlib, but also as the year progresses, they will be stepping up their movement towards uh, reinviting Syria back into the Arab League and continuing their shuttle diplomacy on that regard and hoping to, uh, to capitalize on any movement, particularly in the Saudi-Syrian relationship that could lead to Assad getting more regional acceptability. The Russians are probably going to continue to bluster and talk about uh, countering Caesar Act sanctions and unilateralism, and they'll definitely welcome moves like Syria's recent uh, membership in the Belt and Road Initiative, but that's probably not going to lead much to real contracts and real investment in 2022. So it's going to be continued military operations, a push for Assad's legitimacy, and probably not so much in the reconstruction sphere. Number two, Russia is going to try to present itself as something of a troubleshooter with regards to uh, Gulf security. And it's going to uh, try to uh, either encourage from its position in the UNSC, talks between the Saudis and the Iranians on Yemen. It's going to be actively involved in the Iran nuclear negotiations and trying to establish a footprint there. And it's going to try to sell its Gulf security model where everybody lives in harmony and there's no OSCE-style kind of uh, relationship inside the Gulf to regional actors. A lot of that will probably be more symbolism and status-seeking than actual substance, but Russia is going to be probably actively involved in the Gulf security theater as the JCPOA negotiations intensify. And the fact that the Biden administration is pursuing some degree of uh, diplomacy with Iran rather than maximum pressure will probably be good for Russia's overall image and status inside the region. Uh, a third thing that I think we should look out for is the uh, consolidation and the expansion of the Russian uh, relationships with, with Iran and Turkey in a variety of spheres. Abraham Raisi is going to be visiting Moscow very soon, the first trip by an Iranian president since Hassan Rouhani visited in 2017. We've already seen Iran and Russia line up in the Kazakhstan protests, and that could lead to more economic cooperation inside Eurasia, a potential movement for the North-South Transit Corridor, and uh, the Russians and the Iranians probably working out and, and coming up with uh, areas of influence inside Syria. The Russia-Turkey partnership will likely continue to strengthen in spite of ongoing disagreements in Syria, the drone issue in Ukraine that I mentioned before, and of course the elections in Libya. So we should watch for a consolidation and strengthening of those partnerships quite a bit in 2022. And the fourth thing I think we should look out for is what does Russia do in Libya and what does that lead for its power projection elsewhere in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. If the elections are not held, I can see the Wagner Group maintaining their positions and trying to push for a de facto partition of the country or leading to more uh, aggressive military interventions. If the elections are held to some degree, the Russians will probably try to adapt to the existing geopolitical order and try to use Libya as a passageway to greater influence in the Sahel, namely Mali and Chad. So those are probably four trends in Russian media relations that I think we should look out for in 2022. What uh, are, in your view, the prospects um, for a success uh, when it comes to the GCPOA in 2022? What is your reading on the current uh, progress from the 2021? Do you expect actually that uh, USA will 
finally manage, I mean, this new administration will finally arrive at, um, um, well, at a kind of uh, GCPOA, I would call it 2.0, because I don't think that it's, uh, we can uh, seriously talk about uh, GCPOA from uh, the period when it was signed uh, for the first time. And um, the second question, I mean, additional short question I have uh, is, uh, well, uh, related to uh, Russian-Iranian uh, relations. I mean, they are often presented as uh, very friendly and stable. Would you, could you uh, also um, outline very shortly uh, the um, actually the conflictual part of these relations? Because uh, very often these two regional actors are also uh, mispresented as uh, you know as only friends, whereas they are actually also geopolitical rivals, specifically when it comes, for instance, to energy supplies, but also when it comes to connectivity lines. The one being you know towards uh, Russia and Central Asia when it comes to China, but the other line, of course, is uh, uh, China trying to create a terrestrial connectivity via Pakistan, and now, of course, also Afghanistan, and then connect uh, Iran, and now we have also a rail connectivity with Turkey. So in a sense, there are not everything is uh, only... Uh, only optimism and uh, shiny, uh, friendly relations when it comes to these uh, serious uh, regional actors. Well, yeah, two uh, more great questions. I think absolutely to start off that we're not going to put the toothpaste back in the tube and have GCPOA 1.0 coming back. We are looking for a GCPOA 2.0. So I 100% agree with that. The question is, will the negotiations succeed? It appears as if there's a, a degree of... Uh, of an impasse in terms of expectations on both sides. The Iranians are calling for a complete removal of sanctions as a precondition for any discussions of uranium enrichment. The Americans and the Europeans are categorically ruling that out. The Russians appear to be aligning with the Iranians on that issue, though they might be sending some contradictory signals towards the Israel and towards some of the Gulf states, and that hasn't been uh, missed and ignored in the Iranian media either. So there's a, they could be playing a bit of a double game there. The Russians and the Iranians, at least publicly, are very optimistic about the talks. If you look at the uh, statement from Mikhail Ulyanov, who's the Russian uh, representative to permanent organizations in Vienna, and uh, the Iranian foreign minister, uh, they both basically had almost exactly the same statements after the, uh, the talks in December. So they seem to be acting more positively, and the Europeans and the Americans seem to be focusing on the urgency of the situation and being more negative and being more circumspect. But that could all be rhetorical gestures and, and bluffing. I think the Biden administration genuinely wants a deal, but I think that these uh, different uh, impasses, as well as the unpredictabilities in the relationship, namely coming from Iranian ballistic missile tests and escalation of Israeli-Iranian tensions, which have been spiking in recent months, could throw a wrench in the uh, potential negotiations in 2022. So I'm not that optimistic about uh, a short-term uh, re resolution of the DCPOA issue, but the year is long and a lot of unexpected things can happen. So. We should watch that space very closely. With respect to the second question, I think that Russia-Iran relations are certainly not this kind of uh, alliance or emerging, well, I mean, a, the phrase triple axis, Russia, China, and Iran. I think that some of those, some of the discussions about that have validity, but I think that that may be an overstatement and exaggeration about the strength of their partnership. But neither should we really be focusing too much or dwelling too much on the uh, old and historic sources of discontent and disagreement between uh, Russia and Iran. So there's a tendency to view this relationship 
either as a budding alliance or a relationship that's doomed to fail because of historical mistrust. So everything from the Treaty of Turkmenchai to the uh, Russian concerns about Iranian power projection in Central Asia and the Caucasus after the 1990s to Russia voting for multilateral sanctions against Iran in 2010. I think that those negative legacies are often overplayed in the current relationship. And what we see is a, areas of disagreement that are largely much more situational and much more crisis dependent and much more local and much more short-term in origin. So we shouldn't pay too much to those long-term historical mistrust narratives and focus more on local areas of disagreement. And what are some of those potential areas of disagreement? One obviously is the future of Syria. Not necessarily the issue of whether the Iranians should maintain a military presence in Syria. The Russians were not happy with that, but I think they are learning to live with it. It's more the question of whether Syria engages in serious security sector reform. What kind of uh, contracts are being held in the reconstruction sphere? Are Russian and Iranian companies effectively going to be trying to outbid each other for contracts and energy in terms of phosphates and petrochemicals? Right now, the Russians seem to be much better at negotiating those contracts than the Iranians, and the Iranians are quite frustrated with that. Are the Russians and the Iranians going to align with the rival wings of the Syrian intelligence services like we've seen happen? Will Russian and Iranian private military companies get involved in Syria in ways that might be across purposes? We're already seeing evidence of that too. So there's a number of uh, disagreements about the future of Syria that we should watch that, that could affect the relationship. Also, there's uh, concerns about whether Iran's uh, continued support for the Houthi offensive in Marib might clash with Russia's uh, desire for more of a harmonious Gulf security order and for a peaceful resolution there. Probably a minor issue, but something that could be watched. And also the Iranian domestic political environment on Afghanistan is so split screen with regards to polarizations between conservatives and reformists and moderates over the Taliban, that it could mean that Russian-Iranian cooperation and dialogue in Afghanistan is less than the sum of its parts. And Iran does not enter the extended Troika format in a timely fashion. And if Iran is not included, the Iranians can see that as an affront to their status and that could lead to some rifts and local level tensions. I think that also the uh, ongoing uh, disputes between Iran and, and, and Azerbaijan, which could create issues in the South Caucasus, could also be complicating for Russia. Russia was basically trying to be the adult in the room in that dispute over the fall and talk about the three plus three uh, dialogue and try to encourage everybody to come together and resolve this uh, diplomatically. So that could be a fourth area of tension. But as I'm saying, these are all situational, all local factors with regards to specifically regarding issues like Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, South Caucasus, and not these kind of old overhangs of mistrust that the American and Western media often say are going to be the death knell of the partnership. So it's a partnership that's improving and strengthening, like I said earlier, and Rizzi's visit will add more dimensions to it, but it's one with situational disagreements that will have to be worked around, and they probably will be worked around in, in, as a the partnership is mutually beneficial for both. And Russia views Iran as a key component of its Middle Eastern strategy. And Iran views Russia as a vital component of its uh, approach to a multipolar world order. And that's not going to change, even if these disagreements flare up. And the final short question before we move, move to Africa is uh, related to Turkey. You mentioned shortly uh, about the rapprochement. Do you anticipate any fractions uh, given the conflictual interests uh, for Russia and Turkey uh, now on several terrains? Uh, you mentioned uh, South Caucasus where Turkey actually supported Azerbaijan. Uh, Turkey has also serious uh, level leverage in uh, Central Asia and has has uh, really strong interests uh, on the ground. So uh, even if it 
did not uh, provide military or what kind of whatever kind of uh, support now during the crisis uh, turkey is going to uh, continue being one of the significant uh, actors there and then we move to middle east where turkey of course still has a significant uh, military footprint and also power projection um, and then, of course, moving to MENA, uh, definitely uh, they don't have uh, overlapping geoeconomic interests. Uh, what is your anticipation for 2022? Are they going to remain uh, stable, two stable partners of a rapprochement? Uh, or do you expect more uh, frictions? And I forgot to also mention the Turkey, but you did it uh, uh, already um, uh, when you were uh, explaining the Russian approach uh, to Eastern Europe, uh, Turkey is going to certainly also support Ukraine in a military conflict uh, against uh, Russia, at least when it comes to providing uh, military equipment and uh, definitely the game changer with the uh, Turkish uh, military drones, uh, Bayraktar. So maybe just a short, uh, short uh, comment on your side, what your anticipation is for 2022 when it comes to this bilateral relationship. So I think yeah, absolutely. The Russia-Turkey relationship, the core tenets of the rapprochement since 2016 are likely to remain in place. And the Biden administration's frosty relationship towards Erdogan is certainly not going to uh, do anything to hinder Russia-Turkey cooperation, as is the general unpopularity of NATO and also the United States foreign policy inside Turkey. There was only, uh, there's a poll that was released, I think, by Pew last year that showed only 21% of people in Turkey actually approved of the conduct of NATO. So that is a sign that there, there is room for Turkey to embrace a multi-vector foreign policy, embrace its policy of strategic autonomy, and Russia will ultimately play an important role in that, especially because the Turkey-Russia relationship has its problems, but they're, uh, they, they've, they've proven in the past to be able to work around it. Moreover, there's a sign that the relationship between Russia and Turkey is not just the Putin-Erdogan uh, negotiations, that, that personal relationship that's often acted as a troubleshooter, but there's now more active dialogue at a 2 plus 2 level between the Turkish and Russian defense and foreign ministries, even if their strategic cultures are sometimes incompatible. So when I speak to members of the Russian MFA and Russian MOD, there were a lot of concerns in the past about uh, political Islam and Erdoganism and the Muslim Brotherhood inside Turkey. The Turks also view the Russians with similar suspicions. So even though those strategic cultures and those prejudices are still there, they're engaging and cooperating and talking more at a bilateral level. So the institutional foundations of the relationship are strengthening, particularly on crises like Syria and Libya, and that will probably continue heading into uh, 2022 and uh, beyond. So there's some positive factors for why I don't think the relationship is going to unravel in the near future. Looking at some of the areas of potential disagreement that we've seen between Russia and Turkey, Syria, Idlib will obviously be a major area, but the Russians and Turks will continue to engage in the Asana process and, and deal with the, the macro level issues. So I don't think that there'll be anything more than maybe a, a very brief or episodic escalation in Russia-Turkey tensions in Syria, like we saw with Operation Spring Shield in March of 2020, or over the Kurdish issue in October 2019. Obviously, an escalation like that in the short term could happen but not a major Russia-Turkey blowout in Syria. So they'll work around their disagreements probably and deal with the issue of HTS and Idlib and the uh, constitutional negotiations in a way that kind of blows hot and cold, but ultimately doesn't have a major escalation. In Libya, they'll probably be competing for political influence, using the elections probably as a theater of geopolitical contestation. And they'll also be competing for economic reconstruction contracts 
of the same pace. So there'll be competition there, but again, it's competition that they can work around because of their uh, two plus two and uh, Putin Erdogan level dialogue. Inside uh, the uh, South Caucasus, I think that there is no appetite on Pashinyan's side to really uh, instigate uh, a major escalation with Azerbaijan and the border tensions are probably not going to spill over into another Karabakh war. So the South Caucasus will probably be a quieter theater than it was in 2020. Central Asia, the Russians and the Turks are obviously uh, have a historical mistrust over there. Like when I was speaking to some Russian analysts even several years ago, they would say that Turkey is a regional power that's got aspirations of being a great power. And one of those aspirations is to project in Eurasia. So the Russians will watch what uh, Turkey's doing in Central Asia closely, but they'll see a lot of what Turkey's doing as more symbolic than substantive, particularly the role of the Turkish Council on Pan-Turkism and the cooperation between Russia and Turkey, or at least the dialogue that they had over the Kazakhstan process is a sign that they can have common ground. And on Afghanistan, I think the Russian Turkey are going to also have common ground with regards to engagement with the Taliban and with regards to the uh, finding loopholes in the sanctions regime on the humanitarian side. So I don't think Central Asia is going to be a big area of friction. Finally, there's the issue of Ukraine and the Black Sea and Turkish drones to Ukraine. So of the five issues that I mentioned, the four, four of the sources of disagreement are not going to be that big. But that's one where there could be a big problem if the Turks do continue to supply drones in the event of a military escalation. And I think that that's probably the area we should watch the most for in terms of disagreements. Thank you for this excellent overlook. And now we're finally moving to another part of this vertical expansion of Russian geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, power projection. And it makes perfect sense the way you actually outline uh, this, at least what uh, what's uh, in the in the definition of uh, of uh, this uh, book that I'm really looking forward to uh, to to reading uh, after it's being published in June um, and actually it's out uh, in June. Uh, so your book, your first book, uh, which is titled Russia in Africa: Resurgent Great Power or Bellicose Pretender, presents a chronological examination of. Russia's post-Cold War uh, foreign policy towards uh, Africa. And I would like you to, um, I would like to ask you to make a short overview without revealing a lot of spoilers so that everyone can uh, still uh, be interested in buying the book. I will definitely do so. Um, to just present the main hotspots uh, from a Russian point of view, why is Russia there? What exactly are the main goals? Um, and what kind of layers of uh, the Russian approach uh, are um, actually existent uh, on uh, African ground? What are the patterns of uh, Russian behavior? And uh, finally, of course, this is once again uh, a, a great case where we see of re-emergence because Russia has been there during the Soviet time, right? Are, are we talking about the same uh, networks or similar networks as during the Soviet time? Do you have the chance also to make some observations on that topic? So yeah, that's, uh, thank you so much for your interest in the book and uh, I'm definitely going to keep you posted on how it uh, gets published and all these things as it un uh, unfolds. So with respect to your, uh, again, multifaceted and very interesting set of questions on these topics, I'd like to start with uh, basically making the point that in terms of the uh, dichotomy that I lay out, like whether it's a resurgent great power or a bellicose pretender, I kind of strike something of a middle ground in the book between that. 
So I acknowledge the fact that Russia's had longstanding great power ambitions in Africa. Those ambitions are not just opportunistic. It's not just a response to the accession of Crimea and the deterioration of Russia-West relations and Russia looking for new markets and armed suppliers. And, uh, and we should not just be looking at what Wagner Group's been doing over the past couple of years, but we should instead be looking at the fact that Russia has tried to project power in Africa really since the late 1990s as playbook whether it be debt forgiveness, opposition to the uh, and challenge to the Western international legal order, uh, support for isolated regimes in crisis, uh, engagement of state-owned companies, they followed a very similar trajectory for more than two decades. So this is a, Russia has serious great power ambitions uh, on the continent. It's got a diverse set of relationships across the continent and it's got footholds of geopolitically in almost every region. So it has the image of being a, a great power and it's got great power ambitions. But there are several constraints. First of all, their level of trade, in particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, is just $20 billion. That's lower than Turkey and one-third of what India has. And we don't really consider India to be a great power in Africa in the geopolitical sense. Second, the uh, Russian involvement in Africa in terms of military and counterterrorism intervention has often been more hype than, in than actual success. They've struggled in Libya, particularly when the Turkish military intervention came in. In the Central African Republic, they've secured Bangui, but they haven't really changed the situation in, in favor of the rebels. They failed in Mozambique. They failed in Madagascar in the elections, and Mali is an open question. So their power projection is sometimes more uh, symbolism and grandstanding than actual success, which is uh, quite a significant concern. And thirdly, the Russians are not really uh, cooperating or engaging with other non-Western powers in a significant way. They're effectively trying to act as a spoiler of French and American interests on their own. They're not really coordinating much with China and Africa in terms of uh, strategic policy coordination. Even Russia and Turkey are sometimes taking on different views. The Turks, for example, just criticized the uh, Russian intervention in Mali. So they're not necessarily lining up. And given the fact that Russia's involvement in Africa has got weak economic foundations, uncertain security foundations, will Russia be able to unilaterally project power as a great power in the long term in Africa on its own? And that's a question that I seem to see as being something skeptical. And fourthly, Russian soft power in Africa, the needle hasn't really moved in spite of all of Russia's involvement. So the Sochi summit, the uh, Russian supplies of vaccines and medical aid, the Russian uh, po increased popularity of the Russian media and their appeal to neocolonial sentiments and their support for state sovereignty has not translated in improving Russia's image. And public opinion polls show that only Russia's only got a 30 to 40% favorability rating in most countries in Africa. And that's lags well behind what China or the US have. So for those factors, right, the limited economic footprint, or uncertain security footprint, the fact that they're going it alone, they don't have the capabilities to really do that, and their limited soft power has led me to conclude that Russia is something of a virtual great power in Africa. Uh, it's got great power ambitions. It's got the appearance of being a great power because it's got footholds across the continent, but it doesn't necessarily have the substance to back it up. And that's the middle ground that I carve in between those uh, two uh, theaters. I mean, those two options that I give in the book. Yeah. Resurging great power and bellicose pretender. So, um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sound. Audio. The audio's gone off. No, no, I just didn't want to interrupt you if you have, uh, if you have, if you have to say more about uh, your uh, main thesis, uh, yeah. just go ahead. I have an oh, additional question yeah. to it. Yeah, I wanted to see, yeah, so, because I was talking a while. So yeah, with regards to uh, the uh, 
main theaters of Russian involvement in, in Africa, I think bilateral relationships that I think we should watch in 2022. I mean, just uh, I, I cover the whole continent in the book. I try to bridge North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa together. And I also try to track these relationships chronologically from the 1990s onto the present day. So I cover quite a broad brush of countries in that. So a few uh, relationships that I think we should watch is obviously, number one, um, Russia's relationship with Egypt. I think Russia's relationship with Egypt is going to be strengthening quite considerably due to the Biden administration's frosty relationship with Sisi, though, and, and, and Egypt's uh, cooperation with Russia, particularly in the security sphere, even in terms of drills that are as far flung as the Black Sea, so more expansive military drills. And Egypt is really trying to embrace this role as Russia's gateway for power projection on the continent. So I think that that relationship is going to strengthen and progress. Heading into 2022, one of the X factors, obviously, is going to be Russia's uh, support for the uh, Ethiopian position of African Union involvement in the Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam dispute, which is something that the Egyptians don't like, and Egypt's uh, seeming disinclination to kind of uh, support continued Russian uh, military activities in eastern Libya. The Egyptians have gotten a bit more pragmatic now in their Libya policy, are trying to engage with multiple factions, and might view Russia's uh, military involvement as more of a curse than a blessing. So the calculus may have changed over the past few years, at least from talking to Egyptians about what Russia's trying to do. And there's also competition in the reconstruction sphere and other areas that could be emerging. But that's a relationship that I see strengthening in uh, 2022. Another area where I see Russia really projecting power is the Sahel. So that will consist of engagement multilaterally with the G5. It'll consist of Russia's PMCs in Mali, which will take over from the Operation Barkhan. And Russia's engagement with Chad and the, the both the government and the fact rebels. So that's another area to potentially watch Russia getting more involved in a counterterrorism standpoint. Will they be able to sell what they sell the success of the so-called Syrian model of counterterrorism, which is working with a strong state and trying to fight a counterinsurgency battle, or the Central African model of counterterrorism in the Sahel? That's an open question, but we should watch for greater Russian power projection there. In terms of Russia's relationship with Ethiopia, I think that's another relationship that we should watch quite closely, especially given the fact that Ethiopia has now been burning its bridges with the United States, and due to its recent expulsion from Agoa, the Russians have been standing behind the Ethiopian government in terms of its conduct in Tigray, and that has led to a stronger security partnership. So that's another area we should watch. And finally, Central African Republic. The Russians are on, engaged in an uh, ongoing uh, counterinsurgency battle against the ex-Salika rebels. They've got a mixture of trainers, private military contractors there. They're trying to expand their soft power in Central African Republic through the uh, promotion of Russian language training and through uh, symbolic uh, humanitarian assistance benefits and reconstruction pledges and uh, va vaccine deliveries. But obviously the legacy of the Wagner Group's war crimes there and the, their failure to really move the needle towards stabilizing the country might make that more difficult. But one of the questions we should watch for is, does Russia use Central African Republic as a springboard for broader power projection in Central Africa, namely an improved relationship with both Congos? That's something that maybe we can watch. And finally, with regards to uh, Southern Africa, I think that the Russia-South Africa relationship has been tested a lot under the leadership of Cyril Ramaphosa. It's not as close as it was under Jacob Zuma. His ongoing suspicion of Russia, particularly with regards to state capture, and the fact that Sputnik V has not necessarily been approved as a vaccine in South Africa has led to frictions. But we should uh, keep a close eye as to whether some of those uh, issues uh, change as uh, China's continued involvement, particularly economic influence in South Africa, becomes a bit more controversial 
and their foreign policy seeks to become more multipolar. So in terms of partnerships, I think we should watch Egypt, Sahel, CAR, uh, uh, Ethiopia, and to a lesser extent, South Africa, as some of the main power projection theaters in 2022. And maybe just a final question regarding potential military bases. So what are the prospects uh, for Russian military bases uh, on the African continent uh, in 2022? Um, also, is there any chance uh, for Russian power projection um, actually on the eastern side of Africa, mostly uh, looking towards the Indo-Pacific? Uh, Russia is not a significant uh, geopolitical player in the Indo-Pacific yet, but uh, with the respective uh, military power projection uh, on uh, African uh, ground, do you think that this might be also an option for Russia? Um, not specifically in 2022, but uh, in the upcoming years. So there's been a lot of speculation about Russian military bases in Africa, just like the speculation that we see very often about Chinese military bases. And we see in starting in Djibouti, then Sao Tome, the discussion over there, and then potentially there's talk all across the continent. And a lot of the time, that seems to be more hyperbole than not. The Russians have uh, several areas where I think we can be looking out for a base uh, negotiation in the future. I don't think they're really going to be able to create a permanent installation of that sort in the Sahel. So the French shouldn't have to worry about the Russians stepping in over there. The, in fact, one of the main reasons why the Malians claimed the Russians came to Mali in the first place and Mali didn't send his officers outside was because it was cheaper, basically, to kind of bring the Russians over there and to send the Malians to Moscow. So the Malians are still trying to play an ambiguous game about the Russian role. And that's not going to be an area where a base or an installation of more, more permanent stature is going to be created, like some have speculated. So I rule out the Sahel. And that's interesting for, the, for, any, for anybody French who's listening here might be seeing that with interest. With regards to other areas where bases could be created, one obviously is Libya. There's been a lot of discussion that, that Khalifa Haftar effectively offered Russia a potential air base right in Tobruk or a naval base in Benghazi in exchange for Wagner Group support and uh, a potential Russian lifting of the arms embargo in Libya down the line. I mean, all those negotiations are informal and have been speculated on since 2017. But if the uh, Libyan elections are held, if there is power uh, being afforded to Eastern Libyan figures like Agula Saleh or Khalifa Haftar in their aftermath, the Russians could establish a base in the Mediterranean as a potential uh, beachhead to challenge uh, freedom of navigation and to uh, really assert their power in North Africa. And as I said earlier, Libya is a convenient passageway to what they'd be doing in Sub-Saharan Africa, especially Mali and Chad. Another area to watch for bases, obviously, is the ongoing base negotiations in Port Sudan, which seem to be the furthest along. The Russians tried and looked into bases in Somaliland and Eritrea before that, but they weren't really able to get much success. And neither were they really able to get the long-term use of bases in Egypt beyond just use for logistical capacities in Libya. So Sudan has really where, been where they've been centering it on. The Sudanese military, especially Burhan, insisted that the coup and the uh, firing of Hamdok and some of these issues are not going to lead to a disruption of those negotiations. Russia's military presence in Sudan is viewed more skeptically by Sudanese civil society and by elements who want closer relations with the West, especially debt forgiveness and investment. But given the fact that Hamdok has resigned and the military have the upper hand in Sudanese politics, at least uh, at the start of this year, I think that the progress towards the base negotiations is smoother than it may have looked like about six months ago. The big question is, will Sudan give their land to Russia for free? And what might Sudan want as collateral? The uh, Sudanese wanted S-400s, Su-35 jets, Su-30 jets, 
They wanted a, a 1200 megawatt nuclear reactor. The Russians said that this was way too much. They're not even giving those things to more established partners like Egypt and Algeria. They're certainly not going to give them to Sudan. And they've offered uh, basically hydrogeologic uh, navigation and negotiation assistance and some smaller, cheaper arms deals in exchange for the baseland. Will the Sudanese accept that revised proposal? That's uh, something to watch. And if they do, that will lead to the base being constructed. If not, we'll see these negotiations continue to drag out. Finally, we can look for a terrestrial Russian installation in Central African Republic. That's been talked about since the Sochi summit. The CAR Ministry of Defense has continued to hold negotiations on that over the past couple of years. And the second Russia-Africa summit, which is going to be held in St. Petersburg in November, might be the place where a discussion on that could really take a few notches up. So those are the areas where we should be looking at in terms of uh, Russian bases heading into 2022. But don't believe all the reporting that you see, including these intelligence reports about multiple base locations, is often more smoke and mirrors than reality, much like China's aspirations have been too. Okay, thank you. Thank you for this uh, excellent outlook. And uh, we all will learn more uh, on Russian foreign policy uh, towards uh, Africa uh, once we buy your book uh, coming out in June 2022. Now, I have a final question. We are already moving beyond the 60 minutes. Uh, and uh, this th that is why I would like to... Uh, to, to ask this final question, I think is very relevant also for the current uh, developments, uh, which you've described in a perfect manner in just less than 60 minutes. Uh, you gave us a kind of a, a comprehensive oval, uh, oval, uh, overview on uh, Russian uh, foreign security and uh, uh, military policy and actually on the relevant geopolitical approach. So my question, my final question is uh, related to, um, to Russia's great uh, power ambitions. Where do you see Russia in the global power competition? Uh, what is your assessment about the future uh, Russian role? Um, do you also see uh, actually Russia already preparing for the long game? Uh, that is the systemic rivalry between the United States and China. Is Russia going to play this uh, similar role that China did play in the 70s? Is Russia already turning into this kind of free rider or uh, kingmaker uh, player, uh, which is already showing through this assertive behavior, uh, one might argue? Uh, and also... Um, what is your assessment about um, uh, the, the Russian plan? Basically, what should we expect uh, from Russia uh, in the long run when it comes to the geopolitical options and choices Moscow is going to, uh, to make? Well, that's a very interesting set of questions there. I think that obviously there's a tendency inside the US, and I would say that also extends to some degree the European foreign policy establishment, but less so, to view either overestimate or underestimate Russia's capabilities. Either they tend to view Russia as like the Soviet Union in redux, first starting by uh, recapturing their sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space, and then projecting theater and powers across the world and having this kind of grand strategic ambition. And there's others on the flip side who view Russia as a kind of a declining power is with limited economic resources, basically a gas station with a lot of arms that's just taking advantage and trying to poke and be an opportunist, uh, opportunistic actor. 
that basically is trying to poke and inflame the West and uh, particularly the United States and France wherever it can. So those are the two dichotomous explanations that seem to surface. And what I would argue is that Russia definitely has a clearly defined set of great power ambitions. It definitely wants to maintain a degree of uh, influence in the post-Soviet space, whether that be through economic coercion on gas prices like we've seen in Moldova, border uh, delimination changes like we've seen in Georgia, brinkmanship like we've seen in Ukraine, or outright military action. It's going to preserve that. Secondly, Russia wants to be an engaged and active player in as many variety of global theaters as possible, prioritizing breadth over depth often. So it will be actively involved in the Middle East with the approach that we talked about earlier, Africa like we talked about earlier, even Latin America, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, South and Southeast Asia. We will see Russia try to create the image of it being a global player, but due to its uh, weaknesses and its uh, inability to really support the kind of binding alliances or large scale technical assistance and hegemonic uh, control over political structures that the Soviet Union boasted, it might be more of a virtual great power than a real one in more of those theaters than just Africa. So that's another thing that we need to uh, keep in mind and we need to watch. With regards to the future long-term direction of Russian foreign policy, I think that much of Russian foreign policy is also dictated by domestic pressures and domestic interests at home. So the preservation of that sphere of influence, a desire for indispensability on in the world stage, a desire for respect, recognition, consultation, is driven by Vladimir Putin's own power retention objectives. And that should be kept in mind. So Russian policy can look very strategic because they're putting a long-term commitment to a particular country when actually that's aimed at kind of shoring up a domestic audience to have support for their foreign policy. It can look tactical when they move into a new theater unpredictably, but that could be a way of kind of stoking dissent with the West and trying to rally domestic support for the foreign policy. So domestic politics can create a filter which causes a blur and a misinterpretation of Russian intentions. And that's something that we should also keep in mind. Finally, with respect to uh, China in the 1970s and Russia being a vigil kingmaker and Russia's uh, involvement, Russia just doesn't have those... Uh, capabilities to really be able to uh, influence it. It also, as it engages more and more in terms of the use of private military contractors with some of its uh, autocracy promotion efforts, it's less of a blank slate than China was, or it was maybe in the 1990s where it could say it was discernibly different from the Soviet Union. Opinions of it are hardening. Its soft power seems to have a relatively uh, low, uh, 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 indeterminate floor, but also a low ceiling in many parts of the world. So I don't think that Russia is going to be able to really be that third pole in a tripolar world order with the Americans in China. Rather, it's going to be something between uh, a regional power and a low, lower grade great power and those superpowers and kind of try to exert influence uh, between them. The big question is, is Russia going to go it alone and engage in unilateralism or is it going to be able to really find a way to cooperate with other partners in the multipolar order? That includes regional powers like Iran and Turkey and great powers or aspirin great powers like China and India. And I think that we're gonna see a lot more of Russia going it alone in the near future than actual coordination as a multipolar block. And that could limit Russian influence. Like I said, in Africa, it could limit it in other theaters as well. So that's how I basically see Russian foreign policy. The pursuit of great power ambitions, driven a lot by domestic politics. Sometimes we're misinterpreting whether it's tactical or strategic and Russia really going it alone and not really uh, pursuing multipolarity with the same kind of gusto or substance that their rhetoric might suggest. Do you think that uh, China and Russia created uh, a kind of two fronts uh, scenario for the United States uh, by coordinating officially 
and making it publicly um, their positions, uh, their mutual positions on uh, Ukraine and Taiwan. And do you see uh, or anticipate a scenario where Washington would intend to get Russia out of China's orbit in the long run? Uh, so basically, if that would be the case, was it actually the condition uh, being, uh, well, put on the table by Russia with uh, the um, clearly impossible demands <laughs> that Moscow, uh, you know, make public uh, just recently? Would yeah, that well, be the concessions that Moscow would expect from uh, United States, so to say, right? If uh, Washington really intends to get Russia out of the orbit of uh, China. Well, the uh, I think the idea that the U.S. could really pry Russia away from China is a kind of a 1990s uh, logical fallacy that's still persisting onto the current day. Because even if there's a lot of mistrust, there's concerns about power asymmetries and the uh, Chinese ultimately disrespecting Russia the same way the Russians believe they've been disrespected by the West and the uh, overhang of the Sino-Soviet split and imperial rivalries and hundreds of years of mistrust. The real thing is that Russia really has nowhere to go right now. It's uh, it's got either to align with China and the collective non-West, or to be completely internationally isolated. And the more that the Americans in the West try to push issues like NATO expansion and try to contain Russia's disruptive and aut autocracy promotion behavior as much as much as possible, the more that the Russians are going to find common ground with China and draw themselves closer to China. The more the West sanctions Russia, the Russians are going to get closer and closer towards China and the collective non-West. I don't really see a scenario in which either the Russians abandon their disruptive tactics or the West abandons its efforts to contain Russia, which would be needed to really restore that optimism that we saw in the 1990s and cause the, that kind of alliance to be, be pried away. So I think the Sino-Russian relationship in that regard is going to be uh, fairly consistent. The question is, how is it going to progress and how is it going to evolve going forward? Are they going to be able to establish lines of uh, boundaries within the post-Soviet space, in particular in Eurasia, where they're able to cooperate in terms of Russia providing security reliably and China providing economic investment. As we saw in Kazakhstan, it might work episodically, but it may not work more strategically and more broadly. Will the Chinese and Russians be able to engage outside of multilateral institutions like the SCO and the UN Security Council and actually coordinate on dealing with international crises in the Middle East and Africa and harmonize and synthesize their strategies? That seems to be also uh, less happening. This seems to be a lot more non-interaction and lack of consultation than actual direct coordination and consultation. And finally, could, will the Russia-India partnership and will some of Russia's partnerships with uh, other countries in the anti-Chinese bloc in Southeast Asia, Japan, South Korea, pose a challenge for the relationship? There were some in, uh, in the West uh, as U.S.-China confrontation, sorry, inside Russia, as U.S.-China confrontation was uh, intensifying in 2020, we're talking about a Russia-India third-way axis that can kind of balance between the two. That seems to be more uh, talk and uh, the brainstorming than an actual reality. But will those relationships uh, potentially threaten the relationship with China? I mean, that's something to look at going forward as well as a potential limiting factor. And finally, with regards to Taiwan and Ukraine, I think an equally important uh, move from the Russian point of view was to full-heartedly support Chinese policy on Hong Kong, both through supporting the narratives of the Hong Kong protests from the umbrella movement in 2014 on to the present day, were effectively a color revolution of Western and American and British instigation, and also supporting China's sovereignty in Hong Kong, 
has been uh, quite noteworthy. The Russians have been supporting China's position in Taiwan, but the Chinese have never supported Russia's uh, involvement in Ukraine. They uh, did not uh, support sanctioning Russia, but they didn't support the annexation of Crimea either. And Chinese trade in terms of uh, metallurgy, industrial trade, agriculture with Ukraine has actually increased substantially since 2014 and not decreased. The Chinese also did not endorse the Russian conduct in Georgia and have actually engaged in Georgia as part of their South Caucasus strategy. So it seems as if the solidarity is coming rather one-sidedly from Russia towards Hong Kong and Taiwan and not China on controversial issues like Georgia and Ukraine, though their common positions on the Belarus protests last year and the Kazakhstan protests more recently suggest that more of an assertive Chinese uh, solidarity with Russia is not completely ruled out, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's an important thing I think we should distinguish. Uh, the Russians have been doing more to placate the Chinese in their areas of greatest concern than the Chinese are doing to placate Russia. Well, I think this is a good way how to uh, end this conversation. We could actually speak uh, for hours uh, when it comes to the Russian foreign uh, security policy. And I suppose uh, 10 or 20 years from now, if we come together to discuss a uh, Russian approach uh, in uh, this uh, specific geographic area, geographical areas, uh, there will be once again a lot uh, to talk and to discuss. So thank you very much for your excellent insights uh, for this uh, absolutely brilliant wrap-up of uh, what uh, Russia has been doing and intends to do from now on. And um, uh, specifically, of course, um, on uh, the Russian approach uh, to Africa, because that's uh, more or less a terra nova for many uh, observers of uh, the Russian, uh, the Russian uh, policies uh, in uh, Europe, Eurasia, and uh, that is probably the missing uh, geopolitical puzzle piece uh, now that will be added to the analysis of uh, many uh, once the book is out. So um, I wish you much, much uh, luck uh, and uh, also a lot of success uh, for this book and for all the other books that you are certainly already planning to, uh, to write. And thank you also for being with us uh, for the last 75 uh, minutes. Thank you for your patience and thank you for really um, diving into all of these um, uh, exciting, uh, exciting topics uh, and presenting them in such a consistent and uh, transparent manner. Thank you so much. It was really great to be on this podcast. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, future episodes too. It looks like it's going to be great. And uh, best of luck with all the research that you're doing on uh, Russia, China and all the things that your institute is really, really good stuff. Thank you.